Welcome to another episode of Outside the System. In this episode, Jacob Grenfeld and I discuss the specifics of permissionless entrepreneurship, including how to find ideas, execute, get customers, sell your business, and much, much more. Jacob and I met a while back through Twitter where he is very transparent about his entrepreneurship journey and definitely worth the follow. As always, you can support the show using Bitcoin on Fountain or any other Podcast 2.0 enabled player. You can learn more about how to support the show in the show notes. Now, let's get into the episode. Jacob, welcome to Outside the System. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Just jumping right into it, the theme that I definitely wanted to talk to you about today, especially based on the Twitter threads that you've been doing lately, is this whole idea of permissionless entrepreneurship. I think it's super interesting what you've been doing. Obviously, you've built a lot of different, I would call them maybe you know micro SaaS or, or different types of apps and, and uh, platforms. So maybe it would be great just start by like introducing what you've been working on over the past few years. And then this whole idea of permissionless entrepreneurship, just kind of introduce that as a, as a topic and then, um, and then we can dive right into it. Yeah, it's funny because the whole permissionless theme is something I just recently recognized as kind of like a bigger theme going on. And it actually fits for a lot of things I've done recently. So it, it hasn't always been that, <laughs> that way. So just to give the quick backstory, I actually did a PhD in physics. And this is what I did the past decade. I did nothing else, just studied physics every day, <laughs> doing research, reading books and papers. And afterward, I had to make the decision, what should I do, right? And there are these typical options you have with my background, which is of course staying in academia and getting a normal job or yeah, try something else. And it was pretty obvious that I won't stay in academia because the system is kind of broken. And I went to the recruiting events um, of all the typical, for all the typical career paths, like consulting, finance, software development at, a, at big companies, SAP, what we have in Germany, and quickly figured out, yeah, I mean, there are cool people, interesting people working there, but it's just not my tribe. This is not a game I want to play. And so slowly, the plan emerged that I might want to try carving out my own path. I came up with the idea to try a bootstrap MBA is what I called uh, called it eventually my my learning experiment. So the idea was that I yeah learn learn entrepreneurship on my own terms. So of course there are all these boot camps out there, programs you can enroll in, but I decided to do it completely on my own. Basically, I came up with a curriculum what I want to learn and also how I want to learn it with strong focus on actually taking action, right? Not just reading books and stuff, but actually launching projects and getting real, real world feedback, collecting real world data. And then after 12 months, the idea was to reevaluate if this makes sense. So um, if I want to continue on that path and yeah, it was a very easy decision <laughs> to continue because some of the some of my experiments turned out to be quite successful and i yeah to my surprise was actually able to pay for my living expenses already in this first year so it was kind of a no brainer right otherwise it might have been a, a difficult decision so yeah this was what i now would call a permissionless learning experiment right and <laughs> but also um and 
it's kind of this double meaning um, with Bootstrap MBA. It's, it's I'm bootstrapping my own education and now I probably would call it permissionless MBA. <laughs> but it's also um, about learning a specific kind of entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship is a big term and there are very different games you can play within the big, big topic of entrepreneurship. And of course, you can play the startup game, right? Which is all about getting funding, hyper growth and whatever. And on the other hand, you have yeah, what you could call permissionless entrepreneurs um, who just really try to do it on their own terms. The problem I always had with um, the whole venture startup game is exactly the permission issue, right? You uh, really have these gatekeepers and you have to convince them that what you're doing is good, is worthwhile before you can really do much and it's it has too many parallels with the academic world you know where you also have these peer review system which is which are basically gatekeepers for the most part <laughs> and um i mean there are pros and cons to, to everything but it's just not a game i wanted to play so i opted in for this permissionless alternative bootstrap and uh, entrepreneurship where you're basically funding the project from your own pocket try to stay very lean not just throw a lot of money into Facebook ads and Google ads, whatever, <laughs> to get to that hockey stick point. So yeah, this is, well, I guess, the... Two things I want to dive into on that that were actually pretty interesting that you brought up. So you said early, you know, pretty early on in the process, your projects were able to pay for your living expenses. Was that through generating, you know, customer revenue that you were able to kind of get to that break-even point? You know, you sold one of the projects, maybe some specifics around that would be super interesting. Yeah, it was actually kind of a mix. So one, actually my first, my first product, my first paid product where I actually charged money for was kind of successful from day one, of course, in, in kind of modest terms. But I think after launch day, I was at 1k MRR, which, which is kind of nice, right? It's not a life-changing sum of money, but um, still it's cool. It's not insignificant for sure. It's not like, oh, you know, we got three customers, $90 uh, MRR, right? It's like, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that really helped and was super encouraging. And I later ended up selling the project within this first year. So, and this, of course, gave me a, quite a lot of runway. Was this the one that you sold to MicroAcquire? Exactly, to the MicroAcquire founder, Andrew Gastecki. I know I was following that uh, story when you shared it on, uh, on Twitter what, around the time that that happened, but... So talk a little bit about the product, like what led you to start that? And then like, did you sell it on MicroAcquire or was it uh, more <laughs> organic than that? <laughs> no, it, it, it was kind of a, a back channel deal. Andrew uh, reached out directly to me on Twitter. Actually, he reached out directly after the launch. And at that time, I had zero interest in selling. <laughs> so, but we, we kept in touch and, but it was always, yeah, I never listed it for sale. What was the product? It's called Product Explorer, actually. And I got the idea from a My First Million episode, actually. One of the first was Andrew Wilkinson. From Tiny, right? Tiny Capital. Exactly, exactly. He's, he's kind of famous for buying up uh, profitable companies, growing them. And so quite successful at it. And he, he shared the idea that there are all these products that get launched on Product Hunt every single day. But 
Most of them get launched without a proper marketing plan or a lot of them are launched by developers who know a lot about the technical side, but not enough about uh, yeah, the marketing side of things. So most of them just fizzle out and uh, never go anywhere. So there is an opportunity for people to go in there and buy them and make it kind of a win-win. We can acquire them after a year or so um, when like the project has kind of fizzled out, the developer has lost interest. And if you can, can come in and offer some money, a lot of people will, will say yes, because yeah, they have no longer any interest. Yeah, you could make it a win-win. So I had the idea to provide data for people interested in that use, use case, basically on product hunt launches and then trying to find signals that could indicate, okay, this developer has lost interest. For example, very simple stuff like the date in the footer is no longer updated, right? <laughs> so you can kind of see, okay, maybe this is no longer actively maintained and it's worth reaching out to him. And, and it's also um, an example of, uh, of a permissionless uh, creation, right? Of this whole, whole idea because, and something I only realized later, but I think a lot of people, what a lot of people would do is reach out to Andrew, to Andrew Wilkinson first and ask him, hey, I heard your idea. I want to do that. What do you think? And yeah, kind of this, this kind of thing. I just built it. I just built it immediately like a very primitive version, but it was enough, right? It provided value to people. And this uh, got then Andrew's attention and he shared it, which obviously helped a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and then I think probably that's how, I'm guessing that's how Andrew from uh, MicroAcquire heard of it as well. Exactly, yeah. So then you said he reached out right after the launch. Did you guys stay in touch or you just continued, you know, you told him you're not interested and then you continued building and he came back at, you know, back to you as you started to grow? Yeah, it was basically like that. I kept building and he, he reached out after a while and that's then my priorities have had kind of shifted. So it was definitely a win-win. Yep. And so actually, this is a really good segue to my next question on this, because it seems like you've built, you know, a bunch of different things. It's not like, hey, everything is in the same area or the same type of product, right? You know, some people always have newsletters, some people always have like, you know, marketing, micro SaaS apps, right? It's like very specific type of product. You seem to be a bit more wide ranging. But I guess my one of my questions that I have here is, how do you identify the problems, right, or the opportunities? This one you said came through listening to a, a podcast episode. You know, a lot of things happen spontaneously. But um, do you have a framework for thinking through ideas, or is it more just like, hey, I uh, I have this concept, I have this idea, let me just quickly build something and you know see what I can do with it. It's funny because I'm still learning. And I'm still not sure what the right answer is because I've tried a lot of things. But to be honest, I had a lot of success by just going with my gut and moving quickly. And, you know, when inspiration strikes, just using that momentum to get stuff out there as quickly as possible. This has worked pretty well. But on the other hand, there is, of course, an element or um, it, it, it definitely makes sense to take a step back and actually consider, okay, what's the game plan? And there are interesting factors you can and should consider. And this is something I've tried to get better at, like do more planning in advance and actually develop like a go-to-market strategy, think, think in advance about, okay, who's actually the customer? How am I going to reach them? Is this sustainable? 
And is there actually a realistic path to growing it? And what I've ended up with, and this is work in progress, <laughs> but um, the framework I'm now using is basically looking at three primary factors, which, you know, there, there are a lot of lists and questions people share about that, that you can use how to evaluate product ideas, business ideas. But I think ultimately it boils down to just three three things and this is what I try to use now and the one thing is definitely how confident am I in my ability to get customers to attract traffic to to build a sustainable growth channel and this is like the, the one factor the second factor is how confident am I in the offer I'm creating. So it, it's not just people end up on the site, but it's actually converting. And the third thing is actually, yeah, what, what goes under the umbrella term, I think, why me, right? Why should I build this? And you can talk about like stuff like unfair advantages, which I think is a kind of helpful idea where you can actually list all the unfair advantages you have or all the puzzle pieces you have and then figure out, okay, does this actually make sense? And I mean, you can zoom in, in, you can zoom in for each of these factors and there's lots of stuff going on, but I think people try to be very scientific, but I don't think it makes a lot of sense, but ultimately it's, yeah, the numbers you assign, right? You do a confidence rating or whatever, a number, you assign a number between zero and 10, and it will always be just your, your a guess, right? <laughs> and Especially at that stage of product. Yeah, exactly. You, you ultimately have to just test stuff but um, and get real-world data, but it definitely won't hurt to think about these factors in advance. And especially if you have a long list of ideas to create some kind of ranking and then test your different ideas, I found that helpful to at least think about how confident am I in these factors like my offer and my, my channel, the channel ideas. And what I think is very interesting and something I've definitely learned <laughs> the hard way is staying as close as possible to an established playbook is key, I think. So when I have an idea and it's actually close to something that already exists, I give it a higher confidence rating, you know, because if you try, and I'm yeah, definitely totally guilty of that, that I try to be too clever. <laughs> and, you know, there are, I have so many very clever ideas, but the problem is you will get, probably get lots of upvotes because people also think, ah, oh, that's clever, but it will be very hard to turn this into a sustainable business because there are so many moving parts, right? If you want to build a business, a good business consists of so many moving parts that need to be aligned in a very precise manner for it all to work. If you really try to invent something completely new, it's incredibly hard and you, you need to get lucky, right? Because there are like infinitely many combinations of all these different moving parts you need to figure out. So I think the key is really to stay as close as possible to something that is established and then just do it in a different niche or use a different channel. Just change one of the moving parts instead of inventing something from scratch, at least if you want to de-risk. It's a tough thing to do as a let's say an indie hacker or like as someone who's working on a, you know, project as a single person team, basically, right? To completely invent something new. But yeah, I see what you're saying. So, you know, you're kind of not completely inventing something, but maybe you're 
doing a new flavor on something or you're doing a, a different version or a different market of something that may already exist or a similar thing to what may already exist. Yeah. If you do some research on founders, you will find this is a very common pattern for like second time founders, like first time founders try to reinvent the wheel or reinvent something completely new. And uh, second time founders usually go with an established playbook <laughs> and just apply it in a slightly different way. Yeah, it makes complete sense. You know, that's how they do that. Jacob, one next question that I have on this is, so let's say you've picked an idea, right? Or you've done, you know, you've gone through this process. You say, hey, I'm ready to start building. You know, one of the things that I think first time entrepreneurs for sure do wrong a lot of times, obviously not all of them, is trying to just build the product that's in their mind, right? They have like an idea for a product. They say, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to build. You know, I think second time founders and, and people who kind of gone through the process a little bit more, they realize, hey, this is actually a feedback loop. This is not a, a sort of one way, like I have the idea, I'm going to build it and it'll succeed. It's more of like, I'm going to build it. I'm going to get some customer feedback. I'm going to iterate on that and then continue that process, that feedback loop for a long time. If you're jumping from kind of market to market, right, where are you getting that initial sort of customer feedback? Are you like posting on Twitter? Are you finding like forums? Are you like reaching out to people directly? Like, how do you get that initial customer base? So just for some context, like my only experience with sort of this indie hacking world is I sort of have spent a lot of time in the, the like corporate innovation space and startups trying to sell to corporate. And so I had a little bit of a, like I have an email list already that I could reach out to. I have a book in that space. So there's some people who, you know, a lot decent number of people who follow me on uh, different channels that are looking specifically for that type of content. So it was pretty easy when I spun up the project to at least get like that initial call it like hundred users, right? Like it was pretty easy to get there. I didn't have to do very much. I mean, I just put it on my email list. I tweeted it. I post on LinkedIn and uh, not even methodically. And it was easy. I've always wondered, like, I've seen other entrepreneurs like you who jump, you know, from idea to idea in different spaces. I've always kind of admired that because that's been a, a gap in my own knowledge of like, how do you get that initial set of, of users? Because it feels like once you have that, you can, if you, as long as you have the skills and you can iterate and get to and know how to listen to the customer, you can get to something that people actually really like. But to get that initial group of people for that feedback seems not that easy. So curious how you go about doing that. Yeah, um, having an established audience is definitely unfair advantage, right? And I've noticed it and used it for some of my projects, definitely exactly what you described, right? I have a Twitter audience, I have an email list. So for some of my ideas where it is a good fit, I could just um, announce it on these channels and got the feedback I needed. And I mean, my projects are not completely all over the place. <laughs> so uh, for example, I have... Um, Two that I'm spending a lot of time on at the moment. One is called Newsletters by the other Enrich My List, and both are related to newsletters, obviously. So for both, I was able to to use my um, existing audience to 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 test and uh, get some get some first feedback. But um, now I'm actually yeah trying trying new things for um, for 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 my projects, and I mean. Um, I don't think it's too hard to be honest. Um, and again, I, yeah, I'm a research guy and I always try to figure out exactly like, okay, how, how do people actually do this? Um, because obviously if you have an audience, it's, it's easy, but what do you do if, if you, if, if your product, 
um, what you're building is not directly related to it. But um, I mean, cold email <laughs> is a thing. And I've just started to get into it, but it's, it's kind of magical, right? Uh, <laughs> that you can reach any person in the world. And it's not about like spamming or whatever, really just um, you can find if you're actually able to create a list of people for your cold email campaign, whatever, then you are already a few step, uh, steps ahead of most indie hackers, I would say, because you actually have an understanding of who your customer exactly is, right? Because this is what you need to find like, okay, this, this is the person I should talk to, to get feedback on my, on my idea. And yeah, I found that very helpful. Um, so again, coming back to the whole idea evaluation um, framework, if I'm not able to like really nail down, okay, who should I talk to about this idea? Who should I send just an email to ask what they think um, if they would buy it? The idea is probably not very good, right? Because I don't actually understand the market very well. And I think what's definitely important here is that I am very much only interested in B2B or B2C creators, right? But not to, I'm not B2C like uh, selling consumer apps, right? Which is, which is a different story. And for a zero experience with that, and I don't know what you would do um, if you don't have a proper ad budget, right? Because I think this is the playbook for consumer apps. Um, you just need to throw some money or pay influencers, whatever, to give you a shout out and then see what happens. Yeah, and I, I guess that is a theme actually in the things that you've built and that are you're working on. They're all B2B for, as far as I've seen. And I guess almost always they're, you're helping people make money, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, enrich my, enrich my uh, list, right? That's for newsletters, people who have newsletters to better understand who is on their list. What was the other one you mentioned? Newsletter spy. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So it's like another, you know, similar kind of thing. So that's interesting. Do you ever cross promote between the two products or, uh, yeah, do you, or how do you keep those completely separate at the moment? I keep them separate at the moment, at least because even though they are related to newsletters, the customer base is actually kind of different because enrich my list is really just for, uh, primarily for newsletter writers. They want to understand who's on their list, who are the most interesting people they should talk to on their list. whereas the use cases for newsletters by are kind of all over the place. <laughs> and I, I've tried to, to identify patterns, but it's very, very hard. And people use it for all kinds of stuff. For example, if someone is launching short audio blogging platform and is looking for first customers, he wants to get some data on Substack writers because Substack also has a podcast feature. And then, right, you know, there are very specific use cases, but I didn't find there is much overlap. So I know it didn't cross promote so far. Yeah, it makes sense. But it's another tactic you could use down the road if you, you don't want to. And actually, that's a, a good uh, segue into the next section that I have questions on, which is you even tweeted about this, I think, recently is uh channel product fit, right? So you could have the right product, but your marketing channel is the wrong one. And it looks like, you know, your product is not getting traction, but maybe it has nothing to do with your product. Maybe it's more about the channel. You've also talked about like offer product fit, right? So what you're selling, maybe the pricing model is the not the right pricing model. You know, maybe you're trying to do subscription, maybe people want to pay for performance, right? And, you know, there's different products that different models work best for. So I think 
that's another really interesting topic we should we should talk about. I've actually written about this as well, especially on the offer product fit standpoint, not so much the channel product fit, but I, I completely agree that that's super important too. How have you gone about that process for all the different products that you uh, you've worked on? Because there's something you know something to be said for initial group of users, but then growing you know the the product is is sometimes many times actually you have to take a maybe like a more methodical approach to uh, the growth process. Oh yeah, totally. And I I love the topic, and it's something I just recently learned also because. Product market fit is obviously something everyone talks about, and um, yeah, it's it's one of the the big things in the startup world. But it's actually kind of a vague concept, right? Or at least not very helpful for founders. So you can actually quantify it in terms of looking at growth charts and asking your customers, okay, if forty percent of your customers would be unhappy if the product vanished, then you have product market fit. But it's not gi- really giving you a roadmap for how to get there to this magical point, to this inflection point where stuff becomes almost effortless. Yeah, I I tried to think about what the issue really is and came up with this idea, um, or at least the observation from looking at lots of successful businesses that almost all of them found just one channel that works, right? This is kind of the, the key. You don't need to figure out like five marketing channels, like distribution follows a power law is I think one of the ideas in zero to one. So like 80% of the traffic or revenue will come from just one channel. So this is really all it takes. And the whole term of a market is, it's hard to grasp, right? What, what does it really mean? And various channel is a very precise concept, right? And obviously you still need to figure out a lot of things. And there are a lot of variables within each channel. For example, if you if you consider Facebook ads, you still need to figure out who you're targeting, what your bidding strategy is, and all, all this stuff. Or if you're using newsletter ads, uh, which newsletters do you actually sponsor? And obviously, there's still some room for experimentation, but the, the road for getting there is a lot more precise than market is kind of might be something that only exists in your in your mind whereas if you actually have a plan okay i'm gonna sponsor 50 newsletters for dentists this is my gross channel experiment yeah it's very quantifiable and on the other hand product is also um yeah could be could be ambiguous could be not depending on how you inter- interpret it or what you mean by it i mean is it just the sum of features or does it also include like everything around it I think the term offer is kind of better because it makes very clear that other factors are important, right? Uh, To actually build a successful product, you not just need a good set of features, right? And you also need to figure out pricing, positioning, and these kind of factors, which can be just as important, right? Red Bull tastes horrible, but still makes billions in revenue. (laughs) And it's not because of their features, right? It's because of their positioning. And they're the cross channels they were able to make work. So, yeah, I find it very helpful to think about channel offer fit instead of product market fit because you kind of avoid this trap. And I think Brian, well, Brian Belfour has this concept of the product cycle of death, which is the idea that people just keep launching, then try to new features and they try to get some press for it and rinse and repeat until right they run out of money 
And this is what you, this is kind of the plan. You end up if you just focus on product market fit, right? You, you're not very specific. You just put your stuff out there in the world and just hope that the right people show up at, at your doorstep. And then if you suddenly notice, oh, 50 dentists signed up, um, you can narrow down um, in that direction. But yeah, this is not how it usually works. If you actually study how su successful businesses are usually built, this very unfocused strategy of just building new features, launching, trying to get some, get some buzz going and then rinse and repeat until you have like product market fit, until you find your market, just by tweaking features is not a very, it's not a very good strategy in my opinion. Whereas if you actually make a list of possible channels and then go through so you systematically, like again, you can make a list um, as, as with the product ideas, right? Evaluate them based on different factors, like the time it takes for getting return on investment and scalability. There are good frameworks out there from very clever people who know more about growth than I do. And there is this book, Traction, right, by Justin Maris, the, the co-founder of Dr. Goising. And yeah, this is like the, the whole point of the book. Look, make a list of the different channels you can explore and then explore them, right? And until you find one that works. And I mean, the, everything um, also ties directly back into what I talked about before in terms of moving parts, right? Because everything here is a moving part, like the channel you're exploring, but also what you're doing specifically to explore the channel, like what, what people you target on Facebook, what newsletters you sponsor, whatever, but also your pricing strategy, what guarantees you give to people, what's your positioning, what's your landing page copy. Each of these things is a moving part you need to figure out. So if you actually can start with something established, yeah, you will have a much, much easier time than just trying to make it all work from scratch. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Have you had any surprising channels that worked for you? You were like, you know, hey, we'll try this. I don't think this will work, but worth a try. I, just for context, I'll say one of the first companies that I led growth for, weirdly, and this was in like, you know, this is like seven, eight years ago now. So I don't know if this channel will ever work for anyone ever again. But uh, we were selling to um, to childcare centers, daycare centers, and uh, you know they're very busy during the day, right? So you can't just call and like do like a phone strategy. You could try. I mean, we did try that, and you got some results from it, but it was tough because they're so busy. Email was not something they did very well. It's just not part of their you know routine. They would check email, but just more like uh, you know not every, not even every day. Weirdly, faxes worked really well. <laughs> Because they got a sheet of paper right in the in the office, and there was usually like a front desk person who got it and would put it on the desk of the decision maker, and that got their attention. And it was much cheaper than sending like direct physical mail, right? So it was one of those like growth hack kind of things that worked. I don't think that'll ever work these days, but this was like seven eight years ago, and some people still used faxing, especially in that in that industry. I'm pretty sure it still would work in Germany, like. <laughs> People, oh yeah, really? People are okay. still sending faxes and people make jokes about it. But yeah, <laughs> Germany is definitely still lagging behind in terms of digital stuff. But I think newsletter ads are still very much an underappreciated channel. And I've had some surprisingly good results with it. Because the thing about newsletter ads is that it's a completely decentralized ecosystem, right? It's not like with Facebook ads and Google ads and whatever, where we have these very effective marketplaces and um, 
they are very mature at this point, right? So you won't find like ridiculous return on investment opportunities usually. Whereas when it comes to newsletters, there are incredible bargains to be found. And I mean, there are, there are two sides to the story. I mean, 50% of all newsletter ads are completely overpriced, but the other half is, is underpriced, right? <laughs> Especially if you're like a, like a bootstrap indie maker kind of guy and you can actually spend the time to find these undervalued opportunities. And I think this is an amazing, amazing, amazing channel. So just one example is I paid, I think, $80, $80 for an ad in a newsletter with 10,000 subscribers, something, something around that ballpark. And yeah, obviously I, I made, I don't know, 5x <laughs> my money back, right? Because yeah, it's, it's so cheap. But um, you will also find that a lot of newsletters with that kind of audience size will charge you, I don't know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, actually. <laughs> it always depends on the niche, obviously. But you can find incredible opportunities. Basically, you're doing like an arbitrage, right? That's a lot of people don't realize this with growth. It's like, you know, you can do incredibly well if you find a growth channel before it gets properly priced. Back in the day, people were doing great off of Facebook ads when you could do like 10 cents a click on Facebook ads. You know, Google, same thing, like a few years before Facebook ads started uh, taking off. I mean, Google, same thing before that. It was, you know, you can do 30 cents a click, actual optimal price is, you know, $5 a click. That's an underpriced channel and you should be hitting that all day. But at this point, right, like I'm not saying there's no bargains to be had in Facebook ads, Google ads. Those obviously are there and if you have the money, you know, it's obviously worth it to, to do those. That's why, you know, billions of dollars of those ads are sold every month. But for an indie entrepreneur, right, who is funding it themselves, it's probably not the most efficient to buy 100 clicks at $5 a click and maybe get, you know, one or two conversions off the back of that. It probably doesn't make a ton of sense for you, you know, as an indie entrepreneur. But to your point about newsletters, like these seem to be underpriced. And also, it's not a transparent pricing model, right? Or like, because I've had a newsletter business before as well. It's like, you don't know what to charge for ads because you don't know like what other newsletters are charging for similar audiences. And audiences are so different, right? One newsletter to the other. Like if I have all, you know, if I have 500 people, but they're all corporate decision makers who can control millions of dollars of purchases versus you have 500 people and they're all, you know, high school students. It's like very different values to that list. So it's not just based on number of people. It's also not just based on engagement rate, right? There's so many variables that go into it. So yeah, newsletters actually sounds interesting. I would actually think podcasts might be similar to that too. Podcast advertising is probably also very um, mispriced, I'm going to say, just based on the lack of transparency. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the same thing, right? You have the usual pattern that when a new marketing channel opens up, there is a gold rush, right? Always. Probably it's now happening on TikTok or whatever. Then since you have this centralized marketplaces, they just get smaller and smaller. The opportunity is harder to find. The thing about podcasts and newsletters is that they are completely decentralized ecosystems. So they probably will never be completely effective. And I mean, there are people who are trying to build marketplaces for newsletter ads and podcast ads, but you will always only have like a fraction of all newsletters ever on these marketplaces. And in my experience, like all newsletters listed on these marketplaces are overpriced <laughs> compared what you can find if you actually do research yourself and just reach out to people. 
and just ask, hey, what would it cost, right, to get a shout out from you? Yeah, I mean, when I had the newsletter, people would send me emails just saying, hey, I want to reach your, you know, this audience. Like many times they were actually subscribers and they just had like another business that they said, oh, this is relevant. You know, I'd like to reach the subscribers. How much does it cost, you know, to do like a shout out in the newsletter? And it's like, I would just kind of make up like what the price is. I don't know what the price is. <laughs> just come up with it on the, like it was $200 or it's, you know, some days it was $80 or it just depended like how I was thinking about that market. And also if I liked what they were pushing or not, right? Like, honestly, if, if it was something that's very well aligned to my audience, you know, I'd probably do it for a lower cost because it's just, you know, it's interesting content or it's, it's useful to them. If it's something that, hey, it's like, I don't think this is the greatest fit, I'm probably going to charge a lot more so that they, you know, either would say no or make it worthwhile for me to, to actually put it. So a couple more things before we wrap up here. So somebody who is, let's say, listening to this and says, hey, this actually makes so much more sense than the like, go raise money type approach. And I really want to do entrepreneurship, but I don't want to deal with the, the, the gatekeepers. What are some skill sets that you think really helped you come into this? Because, you know, you have a very, we didn't talk much about this, but you have a very unique background, I would say, compared to most entrepreneurs. You know, most entrepreneurs did not spend 10 years studying physics before they got into entrepreneurship. So maybe talking a little bit about the skills that you brought to entrepreneurship and then how you think those have helped you, whether those are, you know, directly tied to building products or maybe it's more a mindset or, or research focus that you had before. Yeah, I don't think I started with much to be honest like <laughs> a lot of stuff or yeah, i learned is simply not useful in the real world i would say <laughs> not useful at all not even be relevant if i would work at some company or whatever because i was really doing theoretical physics and on the most fundamental level like particle physics so there's zero use cases <laughs> which is obviously why uh, yeah where all the fun is at least for me yeah i wasn't able to to code probably like we had a class but we just learned c plus plus and i honestly didn't understand anything so i <laughs> i really also just started learning it with when i started my bootstrap mba experiment learning software development learning coding and i think obviously it very much depends on what where your interests are and what your plans are but writing is definitely a superpower and something i've i'm using right to my advantage in many different ways. So because I'm running a newsletter, I'm having a website and having an active Twitter account. And this definitely helps, it helps in different ways. It helps obviously to raise awareness for your products. And I almost never really promote my stuff directly. It's really just, I do whatever I want. And then people become aware of my stuff and actually check out what, what is this guy up to and what project is he working on. And this is how sometimes sales happen. But far more interesting is this idea of yeah becoming a lighthouse for like-minded people, right? And I think this is really key because if you're joining one of these accelerator programs or whatever, you obviously will immediately have like your group of peers, you have your cohort and uh, people to connect with mentors or whatever which is a lot harder if you are trying it to do it yourself and it can be very lonely right if you especially if you live in the middle of nowhere like i do it might be easier if you live in silicon valley or something but yeah the internet is 
this is a great uh, superpower it it gives us to all it gives to all of us right and um, we can just put our stuff out there and uh, see who shows up at our doorstep and this is something i've really tried to do from day one put myself out there so this was also part of my bootstrap mba curriculum learning how to do it there are discussions going on and i actually wrote a blog post titled build a business not an audience uh, which went kind of viral <laughs> yeah you have some really good blog posts i'm going to be linking to them in the show notes for anybody who uh, wants to to read some of these yeah at the same time i think like putting yourself out there is key but it's not like this old playbook of building an audience and then to just sell stuff to them, which is what I would call the influencer playbook, right? You do the Logan Paul, you build <laughs> you, you build a huge audience and then you just sell stuff to them. Whereas I think it's far more interesting to write or whatever about you, uh, what, what you want. And it's not about quantity, it's more about quality, right? Attracting the right kind of people and becoming visible. And I didn't go to outreach to you, but you actually reached out to me because of some content I did. And this is where yeah, I made all my friends during the past two years, right? Through my content, through putting myself out there. Always also works like this for me. If someone just sends me a message and they have zero profiles online, it's always like, <laughs> I don't know um, if this is worth my time. But if I check out their Twitter profile, their website, and I see interesting essays, project, whatever. Yeah, obviously. You can immediately evaluate if this is my, uh, this kind of person, is he in my tribe, right? Is this something, someone work grabbing a virtual cup of coffee with? Yeah, that makes complete sense because you can filter. Otherwise, you know, especially as your audience gets bigger or you, you know, just have a wider reach with your content, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day. Like you can't talk to everybody necessarily if there's, uh, so you have to, you kind of do some of this filtering, like, is this worth my time? I think this is one of the still most under appreciate attacks if you want to connect with someone that you really admire right there are people you want to learn from but they get so many messages right and if you just send them a message hey i would love to pick your brain or whatever you will not get a response even if you have kind of a profile online they just get too many messages and it's it's too hard to stick out but there are things you can do like um permissionless creations right just executing one of their ideas like I did with Product Explorer and Wilkinson's idea, but also really just studying their stuff really in depth and then writing about it, right? And I've, I've done this a few times, really just going deep into the rabbit hole of analyzing, okay, what is this person thinking about basically everything and trying to download what they know into my brain by listening to every podcast, reading their books and doing it. And then at the end, write, uh, write something about what I learned and every single time the person then reached out to me and <laughs> like started a conversation and I even got job offers this way, right? <laughs> Which is, I mean, it makes complete sense. Yeah. It makes complete sense because you're demonstrating how, A, that you're extremely dedicated and, and, and putting the, the time and effort into it, but also you're kind of showing up front some of your value before, you know, many times somebody makes a hire, you're like hoping, hey, this person interviewed well, but hopefully they can actually do the job. But in this case, right, you're like kind of demonstrating commitment and value before you even get there. So they want to offer you, bring you in and, and, and have you be part of that. And also, I, I mean, it's kind of flattering too. You go deep into someone's work, right? It's like, absolutely. 
anyone who's ever created something, right? It's like you spend hours and hours and, you know, months on building something or building multiple things, right? And someone goes deep into learning about that. It's very, it's very flattering to hear that. So the last thing, Jacob, I wanted to just uh, ask is if somebody wants to learn more about your work and follow you, where should they go? Is, is Twitter the best place to follow you? Obviously, you have your blog. Yeah, what's like a good starting point if someone wants to start going deep on your work? Yeah, absolutely. Twitter is just my name or my website uh, is just my name.com. So these are yeah, the easiest places where I have all the links to the other stuff. Yeah, I'll put the links in the show notes too, so it's easy. So if you're listening and you want to learn more about Jacob, just go look in the show notes and I'll link to his blog and, and his Twitter. And I'll also put in some of my favorite threads that he's done because he has some really good ones. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Jacob, thanks for joining me. This has been awesome. I think somebody's going to get some really good uh, advice here who's looking to build. And um, yeah, looking forward to the next time we talk. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.